Welcome to this episode of the Test Magazine Debrief. We missed a week last week because of half term. So if you were expecting us, we apologize. We were having a little bit of a break in the sunshine, as hopefully most of you were. This week, we're looking at the 11th of June issue of the magazine. And I'm joined as usual by Dan Worth. Hi, Dan. Hello. Did you have a good break, Dan? Yes, thank you. Very nice to not be doing one podcast. Yes, you see, I saved you 40 minutes of your life last week. We did, yes. Uh, Gronya. You're here again, as always, and always welcome. Did you have a good break? I had a lovely break, thank you. Well, it, yeah, it was okay. I think lovely might be overstating it a bit. But yeah, oh. it was it was, it was was a break. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, we're moving house, so I'm just surrounded by boxes and, uh, okay. and packing, packing hell. Well, on, the, on that jubilant note of two people who obviously really enjoyed their break, I enjoyed my break. I went to Devon, but that's another story. Um, we will uh, get on with this week's podcast. Okay, the first issue we're going to talk about is uh, Pupil Premium. Now, Pupil Premium is a, an interesting topic at the moment because the assumption was that when the catch-up cash eventually came, it would be funneled via the, via the Pupil Premium mechanism. The feeling that the most disadvantaged kids had the most disadvantage during the pandemic and therefore fell further behind. And so you channel the money to schools through the pupil premium. We know, however, that Sir Kevin Collins has stepped down the recoveries are because that money isn't coming or a lot less of the money is coming than he thought was needed. And the money that is coming is tied up into all sorts of things like teacher training and, and existing programs like the, the um, early language programs for EYFS. But all of this came to mind when I was reading Shabnam Ahmed's piece this week in the magazine, which is talking about the perceptions that exist around the pupil premium. So there's no doubt that this is a really good funding mechanism to support disadvantaged students. However, there are unintended, as there always are, consequences to it. Shabnam argues that as a young teacher, you're told of this sort of set stereotypical profile of a pupil premium child where... It's a one-parent family with little engagement historically and currently with education. And there's an assumption of uh, worklessness within the, those families and that there would be real educational struggle. What she argues in the piece is that this is completely you know, fabricated, really. A lot of these families are completely committed to education, commit, completely uh, educationally engaged, but also the struggles they have are financial accessibility to education, which is a completely different issue. Um, so this piece was fascinating to me because it's something that I thought about a long time, about the sort of common language we use around people premium and how we're lumping so many different types of family and different types of experience together. And I understand the mechanism and I understand the need for people premium. I think it's been one of the most successful interventions in getting money to schools, but there's this dark side of it needs addressing, I think. So I'm going to come to you first, Gorn, you're someone who's been in a school. Did Shabnam's piece resonate? It really did. And it reminded me of discussions that I had in, in work rooms and staff rooms about um, the changes that came in when I was still in the classroom about how we treated people, premium children and how they were identified. And I remember um, a, a, a really like, tense conversation where people got quite het up about the objection to them being marked on seating plans and um, having to explain what what the outcomes were for pupil premium students in your classes when it came to doing our own class exams analysis and teachers saying, you know, why I, I wouldn't treat any student any differently. Why should 
why should I have to talk about pupil premium children? And it it's it's a strange one because like Shabnam says in her piece, there's these these sort of persistent myths about pupil premium children and they you know they need to present in this particular way. So when you come across pupil premium students who don't fit that sort of quite tight fixed idea of what you might think a pupil premium child should be, you also get this kind of sneeriness of like, well, you know, both the parents work, you know, oh, they drive such and such car or they do this, you know, they don't, they probably don't even need the money. And that's really upsetting because just because from your perspective, that child doesn't fit like what a pupil premium child is doesn't mean that they're not just as much in need of the the funding and don't need our attention. And that, that really bothers me. And another thing that I think is worth saying is that we also have a real problem with getting families to sign up and to, to access that funding. So to get pe- onto the Pupil Premium Register, we need families to fill in the paperwork and to say that you know they, they require this extra funding. Now, this is doubly difficult. So on the one hand, we've got issues with um, literacy. So some of those families can't actually access the paperwork and they need extra help completing it. And when the forms are sent out for, for families to fill in, they don't always realise that this is what, what that's for. They, it gets them money. And you've also got the problem that um, people don't want to be labelled as such because of those myths and that that persistence, misconceptions around what a pupil premium child is. You have a reluctance of families to identify as in need of pupil premium funding and therefore their children miss out and the school misses out and that that just adds to the problem. I think it reminds me of the SEND debate as well in the sense that there's this real issue with labelling that it's the only mechanism you've got to create funding and support but it's also a really a really bad way of 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 identifying a child because it 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 foregrounds a disadvantage rather than foregrounds the positive aspects of whatever is going on in their life and you see this with send you see this with pupil premium you see it with speech and language it's it's this foregrounding of what they can't do or the barriers and but in foregrounding it it's the only way you can address the barriers so i don't know where it sits. Dan, have you got any great insights that can fix this age-old problem? Um, on, your, on the spot. Yeah, it solves this on, in 30 seconds. No, I don't actually. And I think I thought the piece was very good though for sort of uh, illuminating some of those issues. And you can imagine, like you say, the sort of, and, and as you've done as well, growing you the sort of social stigma of certain terms and topics. And do other pupils even like, you know, bully or, or you know, or sort of semi-bully other pupils if they know they're a pupil premium child you know they're like oh well you get money and and that's a heavy thing to bear isn't it as a child and that can stay with you for for a long time and all, all, all through your life so tricky one isn't it but i think it's definitely incumbent on teachers not to sort of put children in a, in a sort of stereotype box of oh they're going to be the difficult one or oh because they're people premium they're not going to be engaged or their parents aren't going to be engaged and as shabnam says in the piece that she worked with a, a parent who was incredibly engaged and really switched on and knew it all and in some ways it's like well even that it's like well so what? I mean, people are people. It doesn't matter what your sort of background is fundamentally. You're going to be interested in your education or not. You know, just because you're you're wealthy and you send your child to a very good school, why would it mean you'd be more or less engaged? It's going to come down to the person, isn't it, and what they are like. Um, so I suppose it's that good reminder sometimes just to sort of stop and think, do you know what? I'm, I'm assuming this about these pupils or the, this parent, but I haven't actually met them. I don't know what they're like. I have no idea, you know. Um, and maybe actually spending a few minutes just just talking to them a bit longer at parents evening or sending a few more emails maybe is that sort of makes them realize like you are on their side and they should engage and their fear of like i want to get more involved in school but i don't think they'll want that they'll think oh i'm difficult whatever it might be actually is 
they'll have the opposite response. So yeah, really tricky one though. And I think it's that whole thing of you always have to stop sometimes and think you think something yourself, but actually do you know it or do you just think it? And they're two very different things. But yeah, a hard one. Do you know it's how I fix look. it? Go, go on. on. Go on, go well, on. Yeah. I can't fix the whole situation, but how I'd fix a small part of it. I think when you do your teacher training, one of the schools you train in has to be a school which has got um, a higher level of pupil premium. I think that's a very good idea. There should be a um, term of service in in different types of school. We've talk, spoken on the podcast as well about how disruptive educational debate is if you speak about educational experience through one singular lens. And, you know, your perception of what is bad behavior, what is... Um, what is a child from a certain background like? It's completely determined by your experience. And there's an angle for a tour of service that's very disruptive. But, you know, I think as well, there's, there's, there's a case of familiarity sometimes where lots of teachers teach in the schools they went to or teach in their local communities. And that brings more insight, but also perhaps a bit of bias in a different way. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it would be a great start, wouldn't it? Okay, let's go to feature number two, and um, Dan Worth is going to tackle evolution. Yes, so I, I couldn't solve pupil premium funding, but I can solve the debate around evolution. No, not quite, <laughs> but this is a piece, this is a piece, now the writer of this piece is, is brilliant, um, it's me, and um, <laughs> it's, um, I spoke to, I interviewed a chap called Professor Lawrence Hurst, who's the director of the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. Um, and he was a fascinating chap and, and you know, such a complex topic and was just, just reading off all these amazing insights on, on evolution and genetics and so forth. But he, what's so interesting is he has been involved in two different studies looking at how you can best teach evolution at both primary and secondary school level. Now, the secondary school research was, 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 was simpler and effectively just looked at what happens if you teach genetics first, then evolution, or if you teach evolution first, then genetics, because they're both in the secondary curriculum, but they're not linked or put in any particular order. But he told me that at university, you would always teach genetics first, then evolution. So he found it strange that they didn't do that at secondary. So he and his team, they researched this and they found that if you teach genetics first and then evolution, pupils' understanding of evolution goes up around 10%, which, as he said, is like a, is a grade boundary. And it's basically because his sort of hypothesis from the research is that if you understand um, genetics, you understand DNA, mutations, what they are, how they work, then evolution makes more logical sense and you can sort of comprehend it and what it means. Primary, obviously, is much more complicated in a way because the, you know, the learners are so young. But again, they did some really interesting research and it's very complicated to try and explain it all in full detail. But the big takeaway was that with a set of different lessons through, done through different schools, the lesson that had the best impact on children's understanding of evolution was the one where they had a, it was a passive lesson. So the teacher merely sort of read information out from a sort of a storybook, as it were. And, um, and then they engaged in non-human related examples of evolution rather than a human example, which based on prior literature, you would think you'd be the other way around, that you'd want an active lesson and you'd want a human-centered so the child could sort of visualize it against themselves uh, example. But they found the opposite, um, which is very interesting. And, and as he said, it sort of shows that sometimes a teacher-led, you know, direct sort of, I will tell you lesson, even on something as complex as evolution, that can be the best way to teach that. And it shows that, you know, there's a different... Um, tool for the different lesson depending on what you're trying to teach only you could see listeners the grin on Gronya Hallahan's face a big fan of direct <laughs> as the resident trad I'm she just sat here this... like cheering woo yeah I'm, I'm smug I'm sat, sat here smugly now for all the arguments we've had about this in the past you know this this, this is a professor said it must be true <laughs> 
It's interesting though, isn't it? Because, you know, if we talk about the variables on this, how do you separate the the teaching preference? You know, how do you, how do you separate the teaching preference angle from this sort of research in terms of if you're a really active human-centered teacher, you know, if you like giving human examples and you were forced into this methodology, but or you took Gronya and made her do this methodology, which teacher would do it most successfully is always a, a fascinating area for me. But that's a side issue. We're talking about curriculum sequencing really here, aren't we? And this is a, you know, this is what Ofsted, what the government, what many leading teachers on Twitter have been saying a while. We need to sequence our... We need to sequence our curriculum properly, but the research like this is going to be really handy because, you know, it's all very well saying sequence your curriculum, but how do you know which comes first? There's, there's some obvious stuff, but mm. this, this seems slightly less obvious, Dan. Yeah, that's, that is a good point, is it? Because something you think would, sequencing would be obvious because, like you say, it's like, well, you, you teach this, then you teach that, and you would never do that way around. But something like evolution and genetics, particularly at primary level, it's a bit like, oh, well where do you even begin and actually that's interesting your point there about what kind of teacher would respond best to it i mean one of the points uh professor hurst made is when they spoke to teachers a lot of them quite understandably admitted they were very nervous about teaching evolution and genetics particularly at primary because the last time they themselves engaged with that was probably at school or, or you know in a, in a biology lesson or if at all i guess if at all yeah i don't yeah. i don't recall learning actively being taught about evolution at school Do I, I, I don't I, I don't i was trying to think about it. i don't actually i don't i mean i stopped doing biology after <coughs> gcse but i don't remember being an active here is what evolution is lesson but it might have happened i might have just forgotten it yeah, yeah. i, I can remember the lesson i'm sure i got taught about evolution mm. and um and i remember even like talking about it with people in the playground afterwards and talking about like creation theory and stuff what a swat yeah that's, that's hardcore playground chat isn't it <laughs> But we that, get I think such that's... a mixed picture of your school in the girl who's bunked <laughs> off and then the one who discusses creation theory. Yeah. Time, so that's, yeah. that's the, um, that's the uh, black hole that I, I started spiralling down after I read this piece. I started looking up about... I was interested in your introduction about the creationist and, you know, that somehow, sometimes evolution is a, it's a tricky area to teach. And I was thinking, well, yes, in primary, the most recent creation stuff that they did would have been like Adam and Eve and like how the world began. That must be quite confusing for kids. I was on a walk with my son yesterday, on Sunday, sorry, and he said, do you know why uh, sharks are grey on top and white on the bottom? I was thinking, oh, here we go, something made up. He said, because if you look at a shark from the top, the grey blends in with the colour behind it. And if you look at a shark from the bottom, the white blends in with the light coming through from the top. So it's just adapted to survive better. And I was like, do you know what, Finley? I've just been reading a piece by Dan Worth about... (laughs) evolution and you know mutations that create you know the survival of the fittest and suddenly i was like christ he's right like you know they can get these concepts at a young age and then my son's like eight he understood the basics better than i i could i didn't even know that was a fact like i just Mm. thought that's what the sharks look like that's that's Um, that's really interesting yeah obviously shark book um but but I think sometimes, you know, when some teachers post things they're teaching at primary, everyone goes, oh, that's far beyond their years. You know, you're destroying these kids. And then you you, you get something like that and you go, well, actually, you know, I think we do them down a bit. And I think they can grasp basic genetics. And, mm. you know, you think, God, genetics, that must be like degree level stuff. But this this study shows that you can do that at a primary level quite successfully. And I think in the piece, the fact that it pointed out about having an opportunity to iron out the misconceptions and how important that is because of things like that and you know it's that the survival of the fittest is misunderstood by lots of adults that i know and you know we we often use it to describe like oh you know survival of the fittest like 
who's the strongest? Like, no, 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 no. It's like fit for purpose, fit for purpose. Totally different. Yeah, yeah. And young children can understand that. And if you give enough examples and you explain it to them, of course it's accessible. Oh, check out that feature this week because it's, it's, it's one of those lovely ones which not only gives you some really nice colour but also gives you some really nice practical things to take home and well, take to the classroom. Please don't take it home. Well-being. The cover feature this week's on burnout. So um, check that cover feature out as well. But please take it into the classroom and, and discuss it in the staff rooms. And just, yeah, it'd be good to hear back if anyone tries this out and finds finds success doing it this way. Okay, the last feature we're looking at is something we've been talking about for two years, but that everyone just seems to have suddenly gone, well, I, I won't swear, but <laughs> oh, expletive, what about the early career framework? And it's for what, three months out, Gronya? We are, it's approaching quickly. So the early career framework is has been described as one of the hugest shifts in the statutory requirements of schools. You know, when I remember in the middle of the pandemic, when we there's, there were news stories about like mutant sharks in the Nile and stuff, and they were like, not now mutant sharks. And it feels a little <laughs> bit for teachers. It's like, not now early career framework. We've got too much on our plates. We're dealing with teacher assessed grades. We've got the, um, the, the curriculum changes for the new exams. We're still waiting to hear the details for. We've got all the problems of transition and um, filling in that that lost learning. Oh, but, you know, we're going to completely change the way that we have NQTs. We don't get to call them NQTs anymore. We've got to call them early career teachers. It's going to be confusing. And Helen Amos has done this wonderful piece where she's talking about all the things that schools can do in order to prepare for the new early career framework. And there's a lot, but it's it's good. It's practical, super, super practical. Breaks down what, what's needed in schools with some really good suggestions Things like putting a team in charge of the, the of overseeing the changes, being aware about the different provider routes, and make some suggestions about what you can do to your timetable. So get a hold of it, have a read. And I've also got some lovely stories to share about people's first day teaching in school that people have sent in to Before us. Before we get to those, give me your honest opinion. This seems like something most, the majority are behind, one. So the concept of it is something that most people seem to support. Two, some people have some problems with some of the content, but not the concept. And three, nobody has enough time for this. Is that broadly correct? I, I think you've broadly summed it up there. I mean, it's, it's great. I think having two years to slowly ease people into like being a, a classroom teacher is a great idea. I remember finishing my NQT year and feeling like, I'm not quite ready for this. I, I would like, you know, a bit more support in the, in the, in the next year. I think, it's, I think that side's really good. I think it's good, especially for the teachers who've been trained during the pandemic because they've not had as much classroom time. I think the fact that it's come now is unfortunate in some ways because we're not so ready for it but it's quite fortunate in others because these teachers probably need it more than any other year um there's obviously people have have different opinions on the way that it's been done and the way that it's been rolled out but i think broadly this is a good thing it's just unfortunate that we've got to make all the changes in this busy time go neat summary sky news style because he's been on the telly loads over the weekend television's gone your there ladies and gentlemen um tell us your stories let's have some light relief after quite a heavy heavy discussions 
Okay, so this is somebody who sent it in. This is this is an anonymous one. So Remind started, us what this is, sorry. Bad first days. Bad first days. I had an awful first day when I first started teaching. It's not about teaching. you, Gronia. It's, it's about, about me. No, it's don't about my story. To, okay, no, fine, we'll go to the, the persons. But <laughs> I started my teaching career at a fantastic FE college, they say. I began partway through the year inheriting classes from a teacher who had left her post over the Christmas break. They were feeling nervous on the first day, particularly because they'd be teaching already formed and settled classes. That's always hard when you come in and replace somebody else. So they decided to head to their morning session half an hour early to set up and have a cup of tea to calm down and be ready to meet and chat with the new students before class started. So they got there, started to set up, finishing off the tea, and a teacher arrived at the door looking really confused. And after an introduction, he asked, who are you and why are you in my classroom? Turns out, completely different timetable. Timetables they spent all that time preparing for, and the classes and the lessons they planned to teach. Nope, nope, different timetable. So then had to rush to um, their new classroom. Wasn't next door, wasn't on the same floor, it was actually in a different building. So I had to run to get there, find the right room, and then um, find the, the LSA who, who'd let the students in. They were 10 minutes late, sweaty, had, had no no resources to teach the class and had to apologise and introduce themselves to this class who sat there for 10 minutes and the students went, new teacher? What happened to the old one? They'd not even been told that the old teacher had left and they were all really upset because they'd, they'd found out their teacher had left. First impressions go. That's pretty, pretty bad, isn't it? Yeah. Can, yours, and- can your own story beat that though, Gronya? Oh no, Is mine's yours- just a moany one. Hang on, I've got one more. Um, so another Can teacher- this one beat yours? Are they both better than yours? Probably both better than mine. Um, So this one, they were observing a class, but the teacher who was teaching the class wasn't their mentor, but it was a class that they were going to inherit. So it was a class they were about to take over like in the upcoming weeks. And this teacher just went, I can't do this anymore. After about five minutes of the lesson, five minutes in, students are working, I can't do this anymore. I'm sick of this class, you do it. And just walked (laughs) out. And the trainee on their first day had to get up and um and, and try and teach them and started doing like a bingo thing with them to just fill up the time. Always go to bingo. I mean, always it's, go it's, to the bingo. And, it's your go-to, isn't it? And spent the whole lesson terrified. Someone's going to walk in and go, "What are you doing?" But actually, they say on reflection, it built a really strong relationship with the class, and it worked out for the best because that's really like your worst nightmare as a new teacher. And so, if the, your worst nightmare happens and you survive, well, then you can do anything, then can't you? So, what, yeah. What? Why? Did that, so, was that a test? Or was it a teacher no, just, just, com- just had a had a moment and just a very <laughs> frazzled teacher had a moment? It happens to the best of us, I suppose. So, yeah, they yeah, they just walked. Right, out. I think they is... actually walked out and left the the whole job. Just walked out of the school. Like, nope by and went I think the trouble with first days in other professions is that we spend most of it doing admin like in mm. journalism any first day at Tez is spent an hour with HR and then probably a good couple of hours trying to get your IT systems yeah. up online then meeting the team awkwardly and forgetting everyone's name so like hi I'm this person and yeah. they're going this person's not going to remember my name in, in by the time the next person's gone so you haven't got a lot of unless you are really make a faux pas in the introducing to the team moment or, I don't know, do something drastic on your laptop. You can't really have a f- bad first day in journalism, I don't think. Can I, can I tell a story, though, about a bad first day in journalism that I've seen and witnessed? It wasn't me. It's, this is a true story. Uh, where Is it I used not to, you, Dan? I'm, you it's, sure? de- it's definitely not me. Where I used to work, one of the titles in the business was a really was a leading, and it still is, um, a sustainability, green business kind of, you know, what business is doing. And this was 
back to 2012. So now, I mean, even center stage kind of topic, but this was even back then, it was still important. And there was some new person, I think he might have been on the sales side, but he was being introduced to the various people around the business, as you described. And they introduced him to the editor of this website. And, and he said, they said, oh, what do you do? Oh, wait, sustainability and climate change and green business and all that kind of stuff. And the guy just went, climate change, that's all a hoax, isn't it? Like that. And the editor was just like, oh, no, no, it's not. And just walked off. And it was just the most, and we were sat right next to this team. And it was just, oh, one of those moments you were car just crash. Go. Like, you don't say that to your. And he, I, I think he was being, I don't think he was making it as a jet. I think he was a bit like, this hat's a load of rubbish. It was very awkward to listen to. That 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 makes me cringe. Yeah. Um, do we do we let Gronya tell a story yes, before we finish? Definitely. I don't know. I feel we've built. Uh, yeah, but I want to. This is the like you said. The try and work Gronya out. Like one minute she's discussing evolution in the classroom, and next minute she's got a crazy story. It's just part of okay, the okay, <laughs> We're going to finish uh, with your story. Um, we're going to ask Will to put a little fanfare before this story to build it up. <laughs> if we could get some sort of tension music, Will. Um, I'm going to assume it's on 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 now. And uh, give it a second, going to build up, and then and then go. So on my first day, I um, we all went. All the new teachers had to go over and see IT and do the same things you have to do in any job, like you said, John, go and sort out all the admin stuff. And the um, IT technician was really annoyed at me. Hadn't ever met me before, but already was like, "Oh, you're that person. Call me that person." Your name? Do even you know how to spell it? And has changed my name on the system because he objected to the spelling of my name to a different name because he said it was too long and too difficult to spell. I I think that's better than all the stories. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's quite mental. I don't. Yeah. I don't think. I think you've underplayed the build up to that story because so hostile. <laughs> That's, so that's, just, that's just unreasonably hostile, as Dan said. Like, and what, what luckily, the rest of the IT department were lovely and so kind, and I never had to speak to that horrible man for the rest of the time I was there. I just spoke to all the other technicians, but the head of IT there was mean. He was a mean man. He was horrible about my name. Oh, I feel like I feel like we we mocked you, and then we've we've sort of been chastised a bit, Dan. I think. And don't drag me into it. <laughs> well, I feel like you're a bystander uh, to, to this. Um, okay, that's a nice place to finish uh, on on some r- quite appalling behaviour in the school 15 years ago <laughs> that Cornelius just brought to light. Um, next week, we'll be back with more discussion and um, have a lovely week. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief Podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.